Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth. On the podcast, I've talked before about the relative day-to-day quality of invertebrates. Like them or load them, they're very much part of our immediate world. They buzz in our gardens, tunnel through the earth below us, spiders hurry across the bedroom floor, flies rub their forelegs together, reminding us how long it's been since we cleaned the drains. They're not unusual, not in that sense. Unlike us, yes, hard to understand on a meaningful level. But they're about. When you see an invertebrate in your day-to-day, chances are you have, at the very least, a frame of reference through which you can come to terms with it. It'll look a bit like a beetle, or a bit like a fly, or a spider, or what have you. Animals of the sea, though, they feel distant, part of another world entirely. The sea is a place of otherness. The ocean depths we know hold mysteries. The sea offers us visions of formless creatures with gelatinous bodies, life which seems to bob in the space between plant and animal, and giants, the largest animals to have ever lived. While spiders and flies come to us, the onus is on us to visit the sea and the animals that live there. They are, we assume, out there, cold and strange, somewhere distant in the vast, almost endless ocean. But actually, the strange life of the sea is more accessible than many of us might realise. There's no need to get on a plane to the tropics, train as a skin diver or splash out on a small, charming submarine. A whole host of exciting marine life is waiting, closer at hand than you might think. the seaside is not an everyday place, but it is somewhere we've been, somewhere we know. Buckets and spades, chips, all that good stuff. If you can get to the seaside, there are things living there that might surprise you, things that might be new to you. Today, we're going to talk about rock pools, the seaside, and the life we find in these places. Rock pools are those pools of water between the rocks, discoverable when the tide rolls out. Hopeless and bizarre and enchanting animals. To learn more about rock pools, I spoke to Elizabeth Mills of Marine Mumbles. Elizabeth is the real deal. In arranging a time to talk, tidal movements were the chief consideration. Elizabeth is a scientist and a science communicator with a true humbling passion for marine life and the creatures that live in rock pools. Her YouTube channel and website are full of excitement and enthusiasm as she teaches us about the place she loves and the animals and plants that can be found there. So Elizabeth, you live and breathe the rock pool it seems. I do. I very, very much do. <laughs> any any spare chance I get, I'm, I'm out at the beach. Well, I love the fact that the timing of this interview is dictated by the fact that you've got to speed your way to the beach straight afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, oops, I'm actually uh, balancing this whole science communication online rock pooling craze with a PhD as well. So, um, yeah, it's a, a fine tuned balancing act. So... <laughs> Uh, gotta you know squeeze in some time where I can. You're clearly passionate about rock pooling so why is it the rock pool and the beach why is that the aspect of the natural world that you've become enthusiastic about? Yeah I just think that there is such I mean there's always such incredible life throughout our oceans and rock pooling is just such an easy way to access it you only need a pair of wellies and you'll be able to see all of these different species from fish. fish, 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 fish. At this point I'll step in because Elizabeth has mentioned fish, which aren't invertebrates. Now, normally that would send me into a a terrible rage, but on this occasion I'm going to let it stay, because despite the fact that vertebrates have been mentioned, I think that the idea of rock pools and the idea of rock pooling is very much in keeping with what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast, which is that 
there are hidden worlds and there are animals that we don't give much thought that are accessible and close at hand. And I want to celebrate those things. Learning about the rock pool environment, I've been stunned by the diversity of life, which I've never really given much thought. The word alien is perhaps overused in describing sea life, but it's overused because it's so apt. The creatures of the sea live lives which we struggle to relate to. There are incredible things there, waiting in the low tide. So the odd fish mention, a spine or two or a bit of seaweed, I'll forgive. All of these different species, from fish to crabs to seaweeds to sponges, and it's like bringing an episode of kind of like Blue Planet right right on your doorstep it's you can watch you know all these species fighting out to have the right territory you can find species feeding and mating and the fact that within the space of a few meters you go from a sandy beach to this complete world full of marine life that you can just watch i think is just incredible and i'm fully fully addicted to trying to see it all so as someone who's interested in invertebrates i can sometimes feel quite privileged almost almost smug because I've learnt a little about these little things that are knocking about in the garden and in the wood and in the park, which people don't give a lot of thought, but which bring me a lot of joy. And it feels like being privy to secret information almost and having access to a kind of hidden layer which is laid on top of the world. But then I read Rockpool by Heather Buttervent. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce her surname. It, it felt almost like a humbling experience being confronted with all this life that, that I was basically unaware of. An, an exciting experience, an exciting thing. So I look at what you're turning up in rock pools and it's so varied and colourful and exciting. Could you give us a sense of the variety of animals you might expect to find on a good day? I mean, there is, I mean, there's so much life. That The book um, by uh, Heather is, is uh, amazing. It's, uh, it's so, so good. And it uh, all of the stuff she talks about, um, you can uh, you can kind of see. So I recommend reading that for anyone who hasn't. But um, you can, on a good day, you can find. I mean, I've never been and not seen things like seaweeds and uh, barnacles. And there's there's tons of species of crabs that you can find on the rocky shore. And you'll always at least find one. Uh, on a great day, you can find five or six. You can see little fish if you keep your eye out and look for that. There's always a type of anemone there. Um, and there's always, you know, 20, 30 of the most colourful seaweeds if if you look hard enough. And on a great day, you'll be finding things like shrimps and um, sea squirts and and a whole array of, of different fish species as well on a, on a great day. But the staple is kind of those those ones. So the name that jumps out in that list to me, just because of it being such a sort of fun name, is the sea squirt. What is a sea squirt? <laughs> sea squirts are actually incredibly interesting. Um, they literally are just, if you think about, if you're just trying to imagine, they're just blobs. They look like blobs some of them are completely clear you can't even tell that there are any there's anything else in them it's just this blob that lives on a rock but for something that is just literally a blob they are incredibly important of understanding kind of the evolutionary history of of everything because they are the last invertebrates are the last species without a backbone to have branched off before we then hit species with backbones so they're the only invertebrate in the group chordata which is the group where we start to see vertebrates forming and if you look at them under a microscope and examine them they actually have something called a notochord which is like a 
a really juvenile version of a spine. So <laughs> this just literally a, a a blob is is really important and the reason they're called sea squirts is they have this like really almost replica of like a human gut system with a mouth and an esophagus and a stomach and if you touch them it squirt water at you because they've got quite this powerful gut system and they they just happen to squirt water most of the time in your face and <laughs> um, if i asked a child to draw a picture of the beach they'd pr- almost certainly ornament that with a crab so with crabs being the sort of ambassador of the beach, of the seaside, they're familiar to us, but not something that we necessarily know a great deal about beyond they have pincers, they walk sideways. So what can you tell us about crabs and their lives? Crabs are super, super awesome. I am a full advocate of a crab being, you know, the ambassador of the shore. I love that. Other than yourself, um, of course. Oh, well, thank you. I would, I would be honoured to be put alongside a crab. They are one of my favourite, if not my favourite, group of species. The... Um, Crabs are really interesting in that there's a lot of them that live in one small place. So they are kind of like the perfect example and a great way to show people that, you know, behavior as well as adaptation um, of, you know, your body, um, because most crabs all have, you know, two claws, can scuttle around um, and, and look quite similar but they all behave really differently. So you have like the common shore crab, which I often refer to in my videos um, as a, you know, the ninja of the rocky shore because it can just run around and do this amazing, you know, rocky shore parkour. And um, that's how it lives. It's really agile and nimble. It can kind of get everywhere. But something like an edible crab is just acts like a pebble. So you can lift up a rock and not even notice it's there because it just decides rather than run away like the common shore crab, it will just try and blend in and just try to be ignored. And then one of my absolute favourite species, which is just, I think this is my most favourite species of anything on the planet, is something called a devil crab. And they have these bright red eyes and these gorgeous blue legs. And their way to survive on the shore is just to be the most aggressive thing on the planet. They will attack anything. They will try and attack you. They will try and attack a seagull. They'd probably take on like a blue whale if they wanted to. And um, and it's only when you meet all these on the rocky shore that you realise that every single time you find all these crabs, they act in this way and that's how so many species can live in in the same place and i just think that's a, a really cool easy way to show it especially because crabs kind of all look the same but they act so very different crabs and they're, they're crustaceans right yes now crustaceans that seems like a kind of enormous is a barnacle a crustacean even yeah, it is, which often surprises people. And I, barnacles are great because they just confused the n- natural world for ages. They confused all the scientists trying to work out what they are. But yeah, they are a crustacean as well. So normal, you think of crustaceans as things like crabs and lobsters and uh, shrimps as well. But barnacles are there's little things on the shore covered in a shell and look absolutely nothing like any of them they don't move but if the way that they um get onto the shore and like a lot of things that that don't move have a mobile life stage so life stage where they can move around and find somewhere to settle and uh, it's when you look at that stage and look at the crab stage as well they also have a mobile life stage and compare the two that you can start to see the similarities between those and yeah it's a crustacean as well which is I really love that it's the it looks more like a mussel which is uh, not even in the same same phylum 
When we talk about the subphylum crustacea, the crustaceans, we're talking about the group of animals which contains the crabs, lobsters, crayfish, shrimp and so on. Crustaceans are arthropods, animals with jointed legs and an exoskeleton. Whilst the insects are the dominant arthropods of the land, the crustaceans are the most dominant aquatic arthropods. They breathe using gills, which allow them to extract oxygen from water. However, crustaceans do have representation away from the water, in the form of woodlice. Despite living away from the water, woodlice still breathe using gills, which they need to keep moist in order to breathe. This is why woodlice are found in damp places, and a Scotland set of woodlice will be a familiar sight to anyone who enjoys having a look to see what's living underneath a log, or a stone, or what have you. If the question is, what might be living under this? I find the answer, nine times out of ten, is woodlice. Barnacles, as we mentioned, are also crustaceans. Barnacles are those shells which we sometimes see clinging to the undersides of ships and sea-swept rocks. You'd be forgiven for thinking they were mollusks like limpets or mussels, as they appear to live a sedentary, anchored life within a shell, and don't really put one in mind of a crab or anything really resembling a crab. But no, these are crustaceans. Barnacles are the subject of a bizarre myth. In particular, the goose barnacle, a crustacean, is connected through this strange myth with the barnacle goose, a bird. The barnacle goose is a bird which migrates away from Europe in the summer, breeding in the far north, up in the Arctic. As such, without a clear understanding of the notion that birds migrated, people didn't always understand where these geese were suddenly popping up from in the summer. It was thought that the goose barnacle, perhaps the egg stage of the barnacle goose, having a vaguely neck-like stalk with which it anchors itself to its home, and a rather beakish shell, one can see how the barnacle gained an association with birds. Gerald of Wales, writing in the 12th century, noted, I have myself seen many times with my own eyes more than a thousand minute corpuscules of this kind of bird, hanging out on one log on the shore of the sea, enclosed in shells and already formed. It sounds really silly now. It's easy to think of people in the distant past as less intelligent than us when we look at how they thought about animals. But that's hardly fair. Ignorant, maybe, in the strictest sense. I dare say that scientists from the future will find our 21st century understanding of animals and the world at large to be enormously lacking. They'll have more information than we do. We can't really judge these people from the past by our standards. The Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, writing in the 13th century, demonstrates that whilst the myth of the barnacle goose and the barnacle was well known, scientific rigour was not an unknown thing to people of the past. He writes, It is said that in the far north, old ships are to be found in whose rotting hulls a worm is born that develops into the barnacle goose. This goose hangs from the dead wood by its beak until it is old and strong enough to fly. We have made prolonged research into the origin and truth of this legend and even sent special envoys to the north with orders to bring back specimens of those mythical timbers for our inspection. When we examined them, we did observe shell-like formations clinging to the rotten wood but these bore no resemblance to any avian body. We therefore doubt the truth of this legend in the absence of corroborating evidence. Many people did believe silly things, but not everyone did. It was ever so. So when you say um, a mobile stage, is that like a, I can't help but draw sort of insect comparisons, but is that like a, like a larval stage? Yeah, kind of. It's, it's, it can be, it can be like that. I'm not too familiar with all the the larval things, but it can be quite complicated as well. So it's it's a stage where they spawn into the water, and then they can spend any time from, you know, twelve hours to months on end, depending on the species, floating around in the water, going through lots of molts, a lot like a kind of like a caterpillar into a butterfly. They can 
like more metamorphosize as they go through these stages and um a barnacle has i think eight stages and then it's, its last one it forms um something called a cypriot and then it goes and searches for its home so they can be uh, it's quite an important part of their life because it, it determines where they settle how they live and you know if it's quite rough conditions these tiny little things that are just floating around in the plankton waiting to be eaten and most of them probably will but the ones that survive you know get lucky and uh, get to find a great place to live out their life one of the things i'm most interested in is the fact that people with invertebrates with with animals they know a little bit and suspect a little bit but they don't necessarily understand or there's little questions that haven't been answered and one thing that you always see when you go to the seaside is little sort of coils almost that that look like cartoon dog poos on the sand what what are we looking at there is that something that you could tell us about yeah so they are lugworm casts and growing up fishing on the beach is something that uh, i'm very familiar with uh, as they're kind of like the go-to bait for fishermen and uh, a lugworm it just looks like a tube really and it has this little um it kind of gets narrower at one end and uh, in the uk actually that that kind of narrow part at the end if you hold them too long it stains your fingers yellow uh, I don't know why that's the thing for the worm, but <laughs> I've spent many a day with my fingers being completely yellow. And um, they form a U-shaped tube. So they live at the bottom of this U-shape and how they feed is they kind of eat all the sand and inside they can filter out the, the nutrients of that sand, get the nice parts of it and out the back end, they um, push the rest of the sand out so that as they burrow they they're kind of making the burrow and getting it but it's that action of pushing it out at the end that pushes the sand right up to the top and forms those kind of weird uh, spirally sand speaking kind of crudely i'm I'm sort of made reference to it there crabs and shrimp and lobsters and, and these crustaceans they sort of they feel like the insects or the arachnids of the sea it's sort of a they look kind of similar they they're these legged creatures that scuttle about maybe could you give us an example of something that feels more a bit more alien to people that are used to terrestrial invertebrates? Yeah, so one thing that um, that I always thought looks literally like something that can come straight out of an alien horror film are these kind of there's these green blobs that you can find, and they're about the size of a marble. And sometimes even on a sandy shore or a rocky shore, you can find them and they kind of cover the beaches at different times of year. And I always used to think they were maybe they look like some sort of fish egg, maybe, but they really just look this bright, bright green blob. And uh, it was one of the first things that I managed to kind of use my online community to like ask the question and learn from because I posted a question like, what are these? Like, I have no idea what they are. And it came back and there were this... Um, the eggs of this thing called a green leaf worm but this green leaf worm is about a hundred times smaller than the eggs that it lays and I was lucky enough in one of my videos to film it laying and it's this little worm that just like wrap, keeps wrapping itself around and just lays these almost giant human body eggs and um, that is uh, although it, I suppose the worm itself is is not that weird the eggs it lays can really oh, be yeah. like are we getting an alien invasion they um, do look alien don't they yeah they always remind me of like dracula's eggs in van helsing the film <laughs> it's just like oh. this weird <laughs> gross egg sacks 
I'm absolutely thrilled that Van Helsing's been mentioned, which is a film that oh, I'm great. I'm not opposed to actually. <laughs> so I, um, I, I quite enjoy that film. I like it. Yeah, it's got, it's got a, good, a lot of good going for it. Yeah, they look almost like I can imagine. I've got a really vivid mental image of in a film like you'd see a hand being pressed against it from the inside and sort of stretching and it looks like, yeah, it would come from space and something appalling would crawl out of it. Yeah, it's really cool. And um, there's another species I was thinking of as well. Is uh, In one of my uh, well, recent videos, I was exploring um, my local kind of sandy beach and came across this thing and it looked like tentacles, just like long tentacles. And I thought it, that mixed with a like a plant maybe like if tentacles were made out of like a potato looking thing and it turns out that that was an animal um and and just it wasn't the tentacles of something that had brushed off like that was its whole animal self and it's this animal uh, called sea chervil which actually if you find something that looks like that um i found out later you shouldn't really touch it because it can actually give you uh, a bit of a rash as well which i thought was interesting and again adds to this you know really bizarre um bizarre find and it's called a bryozoan which usually you find these little um bryozoan colonies that look like crisps about the size of a crisp that grow over things and they're made up of um that it's a colony and each individual animal is this teeny weeny micros not quite microscopic but very very close to microscopic tiny Mm. little um individual that looks a bit like a circle but under a microscope they they get a lot fancier and they formed this thing. But this one had formed this giant colony of this tentacle thing called sea chervil. And I, I could not believe that that was, you know, alive and, and was actually, you know, probably millions of individuals of this bryzo and forming one species together. So looking at them, they, they, they almost put me in mind of, of something like a coral or... Yeah, I can, I can see the reference kind of to it one of those like long corals if it was standing up but yeah it looks like maybe antlers almost yeah absolutely antlers in there it looks like something that's been battered and cooked (laughs) the one of the kind of specific animal that i was interested in is is the sea spider something that i've sort of seen pictures of although looking at invertebrates i think that this you often lose scale in pictures that you see in Mm. kind of handbooks and things i'd assumed they were kind of waist height but seeing in your videos, they're clearly not. What is a sea spider? Yeah, so a sea spider, uh, you say that um, sea spiders can actually get pretty big. Um, there's a phenomenon in the ocean where as you go deeper into this, like the deep sea, they just tends, everything tends to get giant, which, you know, adds to the, you know, the horror of it. And uh, you, they can actually be like 2.7 feet long or something similar to that um in the deep sea but in the uk you'll be pleased to know that they only get to about fingertip size um and they're not true spiders they're still in the same kind of group but they're not true arachnids arachnids are the closest kind of group that they are related to and that they're really cool in the uk they don't hunt anything super scary um they they actually only eat and feed and it's hilarious because whenever they're described they, they're described as hunting but I don't quite count this as hunting because everything they feed on doesn't move so it's a bit like gra- a, a rabbit hunting grass um and so they eat things like bryozoans and hydroids which are like basically look like tiny little sea plants but they're not plants they're animals and um and sponges and things which which are just don't move and 
they're they're kind of unfortunate they've got an unfortunate latin name their latin name is uh pycnogonid or that that group of species and it's because the, the pycno part means they're basically all feet or all legs because if you look at them they've barely got any body and they are just all this gangly long legged uh creature almost like a spider that lacks any features yeah just like if you were going to draw a stick drawing of a spider <laughs> that's kind of what it is and uh they don't really have many places to put all their organs because they don't really have a body. It's, it's all just legs and an attachment point. So um, the pycnogonid part basically kind of means they're sex organ legs because uh, the biggest part of the organs are, are the, the reproductive parts on their legs. And I always kind of feel a bit sorry for them that, you know, <laughs> might feel a bit uh, a bit self-conscious of the fact that their Latin name just gives away the fact that they're just walking around with <laughs> everything hanging off their legs. You mentioned the word horror in what you were just talking about. And mm. I think that when we talk about invertebrates or these kind of animals that, that do seem alien compared to the, the animals that we feel closer to or that we see more regularly, there is a tendency to, for people to be frightened. Now, whilst that's maybe true of deep sea creatures and things out in the open ocean, how do you feel people respond to to rock pool creatures, to creatures that you see at the seaside? Yeah, I mean, I'm a full person to advocate to it not being a horror. I know I technically just described it as that, but there is something, uh, there is something, you know, sci-fi about, you know, the deeper you go in the ocean, the, the bigger these get, yeah, which is, which is really great. But I think, I mean... There are different reactions. There are people that absolutely fall in love with everything. And there are people that are, are scared of what they see and think that they're going to get hurt. And there is a mystery around whatever we find in the oceans as well. Um, and a part of what I want to share and show people is, you know, to not be scared, to to not fear any of the animals. There's very rare in the UK that any of the animals can kind of harm you. You're always going to do more damage to the animal than they will do to you. And I think just a few interactions with with species up close and personal and seeing the amazing way that they live, uh, people kind of forget their fear and instantly kind of get more comfortable. But there does seem to be, you know, as soon as you step across that tide line, people get super nervous about, you know, that a shark is going to jump out at them or something, you know, it kind of, but it's like that, that fear of fear of that has kind of resonated onto everything everything I, I i think sometimes but um but yeah but then everyone loves rock pooling as well it's one of those childhood uh, um, amazing things where you are fascinated by it and i'm trying to as part of my just kind of message to put out there is to keep that childhood love kind of alive as you get into adults and, and not be scared and, and be able to look and, and experience this uh, amazing amazing world so with that in mind let's let's talk about marine mumbles so this is your your youtube mm. channel and your website yeah. and it, it, it's it's wonderful it's a really approachable exciting engaging um way of presenting the creatures of the sea of the rock pool of the of the shoreline can you tell us a little bit about about what you're doing what what maybe you have planned for the future and what your your hope is for your your content thanks yeah i really appreciate the compliment that's really nice um yeah so marine mom was started off as a website where i would draw scientific kind of artwork i'd paint kind of trying to paint my way through the oceans and uh, mm. as i go explain 
um, what I'm doing. But uh, I kind of wanted a more hands-on approach, be able to take people rock pooling with me, to be able to kind of show a bit more enthusiastically uh, how much I love all these creatures. And so I moved on to YouTube and I've been making a weekly video now every week for over two years. And it's all either rock pool themed or ocean themed. And I'm really enjoying it. It's just it's just trying to show people that marine biology is accessible, that you can reach it with just a pair of wellies, that the UK has incredible coastlines. And in fact, the more people learn about our coastlines, the more people fall in love with it, the more likely we are to be able to protect it, to know if there are any threats to it. And just kind of, you know, making the most of the fact that uh, I'm in the UK, we're in the UK and we have this incredible coastal uh, coastal country but potentially we don't we take it for granted a bit more than we should do and um yeah every person that can get more involved in in just basically protecting the coast or just admiring the coastline is is going to make all the difference in making sure that it stays as great as it is um going forward so I mean, I've got lots of different types of um, videos on my uh, channel. I've got vlogs where I take people rock pooling. I've got this uh, kind of this series called Sea Life Sketchbook Sessions where we take an animal and we sketch out its anatomy and kind of talk about how it has evolved and and all the cool facts about it. Um, that's usually the weirdest species that I, I particularly love to draw and, and kind of dive into. And I have a documentary series called When the Tide Retreats, where um, it's a more still fun and engaging, but a more serious look at just how incredibly amazing all of the the habitats are. And I make those a bit more serious because I really want people to take that, you know, completely seriously. And and hopefully they like that. And there's uh, plenty more. I mean, I've I'm so lucky now to be able to get back to the rock rocky shore and i've been filming and stocking up so there is a few new um series going to come out um soon and hopefully stocked up uh, over over the winter so now is t- i'm going to plug myself but now is the time to head over and subscribe because i'm really excited for the for the great content that's coming up um fully rock pooling related lots of marine biology stuff and it's going to be really good you've mentioned um that all you need to start rock pooling is a pair of wellies if i want to go rock pooling i've got my wellies what is the procedure? How am I going rock pooling? Great. Yeah, good question. The uh, So you've got your wellies. Before you even set off out of the house, you need to check the uh, tide times. You can rock pool probably uh, you maybe two, three hours before low tide and two and three hours after low tide. The, you know, two hours either side you've got. Um, you don't have to worry about the tide coming in or, or out too much. But um, you want to make sure that you know when low tide is and you if, if possible you can get there before low tide and you head straight down to the bottom and try not to get too distracted by everything at the top if you want to you know look at the whole shore and um you don't really want to be at low shore past and and this i, I will put this disclaimer out that this varies shore to shore because some shores will take a while to come back in and others will be really quick so if you're nervous and this is the first time you're going rock pooling i would recommend not being anywhere near low shore you know once that time has passed but if it's somewhere you know you've got 20 or so minutes past low tide you can spend that time exploring right at the low shore which is where you'll find all the species that usually just live underwater and only really pop out for that you know 20 30 minutes around low tide and then you can just kind of slowly make your way back up the shore making sure that you um 
keep an eye on the tide make sure you're looking both sides of you so that the tide doesn't kind of sneak in front of you if a bit of the shore is lower i would take a phone as well if anyone's got one to make sure that you're um i rock pool alone a lot so i always text someone when i'm off and on the shore just to just to be extra safe but when you're going rock pooling and you're looking for stuff you honestly don't really need a net and a bucket and everything uh, people a uh, lots of people choose to rock pool like that I would say that you find a lot more life just by sitting at the edge of a rock pool, even, you know, sitting on a rock, putting your feet in a rock pool and just sitting there for 10 minutes because all the species immediately forget or don't really care that you're there and will come out and start swimming around. Whereas if you go in with a net and try and catch all of these different things, everything just runs for cover and um, you find a lot more just taking a step back but also you don't have to go down to low tide and see all these different species there within the first few meters you'll find all the species i've spoken about as well so you can kind of pick just where you're comfortable exploring but yeah definitely wear a pair of wellies so that you can go in the rock pools and um and the rocky shore is quite slippery so you know a good pair of wellies with some grips is is uh, great just to you know make it a lot easier for you to walk on the seaweeds well, i'm off to to Whitstable at some point relatively soon so fingers crossed that I can acquire some wellies in advance of that oh I love Whitstable <laughs> is it a good a good site for the rock pooling yeah I think it's it's pretty good yeah a lot of the Kent coast is kind of a mixture of sand and um rocky shore and kind of pebble beaches which means you can find some really weird stuff because there tends to be a lot of weird things on sandy shores and weird stuff in rock pools and when they the two kind of merge together you know so I would say that you you're you might find anything you've got a whole range of species that you could come across i bet you'll probably find something really bizarre i'm looking forward to it. i'll let you know so i was going to ask about the seasonal nature of things for admirers of insects you know the summer months really are kind of are the heyday is is rock pooling a seasonal pursuit that definitely depends on where you are i would love to go rock pooling all year round and and i'm originally down, uh, from kent and there i can go to the beach um all the time and I've uh, got this this kind of like new uh, I've got this thing where on like the day after New Year's every year for the last couple of years I go and explore the same beach so that we can compare exactly what's growing there year by year um, so that is the kind of place where you can explore all year round and um, it's super safe to do so and you just you know you need a coat in winter and you can take it away I now live in uh, Dundee in Scotland and you can totally go out into the rock pools all year, but it does become more dangerous in winter because the sea is so cold that the risk once, you know, I haven't yet, but if I accidentally, you know, fell in, then that is a much more of a problem in winter than it is in summer. Otherwise, in summer, it's just, you know, a nice cool swim. Um, and the other thing for me, making it seasonal is being able to film with a camera so it gets to about before april and after about october you need to wear neoprene gloves in the rock pools to be able to film for any length of time because your hands just freeze and then it gets to the point where the neoprene gloves don't really do very much and that's kind of the point at which i uh, i call it quits but i would say that you know it's definitely more fun i suppose in um summer and the other thing about seasonal stuff is is that species will be seasonal so the best time to find things in the sea is from from april to about october where everything is breeding and everything is kind of having this incredible life 
first but a lot of them will either swim off from the rock pools and go out to sea or they might uh, not make it past summer and um um but then winter is great for the fact that you're you're being left with the big mature species the species that know how to survive they know how to be there so you might have to look for a bit longer but um even now i'm starting to find you know really awesome big fish species in the rock pools instead of the hundreds of thousands of tiny little fish and that in itself is is really interesting to to see wonderful thank you so last question i think um you're going out rock pooling later today very shortly actually um have you got like a a white whale like something that you've always wanted to see that potentially you know you could see quite realistically could see but never have managed to is there anything that you're you know you feel like you're you've always been searching for a hundred percent it's a, i will find an octopus that is my goal i've i i've had a a list of different species that I, I want to film in. And, and I was lucky enough the other day when I was rock pooling to, to get quite a few of those off of my list of, it was a, a squat lobster, which is, I've seen a lot, but really difficult to film. My devil crab, which is the favourite one I've seen before, but not been able to film. But I've not even come close or seen an octopus in the wild before. And I am desperate, but they're incredible. just want, yeah, they are amazing, aren't they? But they're so smart and they have, perfect camouflage so it's kind of just going to be one of those things of if I stumble across it I'll be lucky to do so but not many people have been lucky enough to see a wild octopus and especially not rock pooling in the UK so it's just I I go rock pooling all the time so I feel like you know at this point I'm just hoping that um just sheer quantity will will put one in my path at some point um but yeah I will be over the moon if i if i find one of them so that but there's an important takeaway there which is that something that people might not realize which is it is conceivable you know these aren't necessarily creatures Mm. that just live right out there in the ocean it is conceivable that at a rock pool at your local beach it's conceivable that you could see yeah a hundred percent i know people i know people that have um that have just been you know gone rock pooling once um that just happened to be the day that, they, yeah, <laughs> that that just happened to be the day that they saw one. And that, yeah, that's the thing I really want to emphasise about rock pooling is that you see all these incredible species on, on marine documentaries and people immediately think marine biology is something for the tropics or something for the open ocean. And it, it's really not. It's something that's literally right on your doorstep. There is every type of marine creature almost living on a rocky shore and you can see it not even just on one shore but within a few meters on that shore and I have been rock pooling must be hundreds of times now and and just when I think I found you know everything that I can find there's something new and every rock pooling trip there has been something new that I have spotted and has shocked me and I just think that that is incredible that you can go rock pooling for hundreds of hours and and still not be bored in the slightest and still surprised so everyone should go rock pooling and should work to defend our beaches and to keep things clean and 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 conserve what we have actual last question is a very very short question do you have any strong feelings about the song rock lobster the song i don't know if i know it oh no okay right so that can be your takeaway from this interview i hope 
Yeah, um, I'm going to go do so my homework. <laughs> I can't believe you've never heard Rock Lobster. Okay, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me. Absolutely, no problem. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk about rock pulling. Seems to do it all the time. It's my favourite thing to do. <laughs> I didn't get to Whitstable. The pandemic kicked off and it wasn't to be. However, I'm looking forward to whenever I next get a chance to visit the seaside. I'm looking forward to exploring the rock pools, seeing what I can find, and then having five portions of chips and peas and passing out in the sand. Until that happy day, and until the next time you get to visit the coast, Marine Mumbles is a great place to learn more about ocean animals. I'm incredibly grateful to Elizabeth for sharing her expertise and for speaking with me about the amazing creatures that live in our rock pools. As terrestrial animals ourselves, animals that live on land, it's easy to forget about the sea and its vast import. The majority of the world's living space is within the ocean, a dark, deep and incredible world, which we need to do all we can to protect. Our oceans are heaving with life, much of it profoundly unfamiliar to us, but utterly captivating. Rock pools give us access to this world, a chance to experience a little glimpse into the incredible habitat, which is the ocean, a chance to meet with the kinds of creatures which call it home. And so, with that in mind, I for one should be buying a pair of wellies and a bucket. Rubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hutton. I'd love to know about your relationship with the ocean and the animals that live within it. Happy memories of childhood rock pooling? Or perhaps like me, you've stepped on a sea urchin and been fully convinced you'd be losing your leg within the day. If you want to get in touch, please do look up Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter and Instagram or email at grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com. Until next time, don't forget to live inside a U-shaped tunnel filtering the sand for tiny animals and dead matter. Bye.